In this life, I am the watcher who sees all. I see other worlds, other timelines, other realities, worlds of what if. In the world you know, Dan and Mark argue over whether or not amazing Spider-Man annuals count toward their collection. But what if, in another reality, annuals weren't stuffed full of inventory stories, reprints, and out-of-continuity tales? What if, in another reality, annuals were treated with care? If annuals were treated as they should be, year after year, with a chance to tell long-form comic stories that went beyond the continually reduced page count of modern superhero comics. What if annuals truly counted? Alas, that is not our reality. It is just a what if, a projection of another world. As the Watcher, I am consigned to an action, lest my involvement change the very fabric of this reality. And thus, annuals will have to remain of the contention. Truly will the co-hosts of the Amazing Spider Talk ever know Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. I guess so, Dan, because that's what the start. <laughs> I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Right, Uatu? <laughs> Alas, we'll never know. Alas. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for the seventh episode of season four of the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip and the villains were forgettable, and Spider-Man found some amazing new friends. But this time period also brought us Marvel's first chance to look back at their titles and change things up. 
For so long, Marvel's been speaking of their books as myth. But with the new What If title, Marvel began to play with that mythology and offer up ideas on what could have happened if things played out just a little bit differently. With Spider-Man leading their sales and acting as the figurehead for Marvel Comics, it made sense that many of these stories would feature an alternative look at Spidey's fraught history. From these tales came the ideas for Spider-Girls, Misguided Spider-People, Superhero Flash Thompson, and the early sparks that would later erupt into the Spider-Verse. That's right, Mark. And if you're watching live, you can see an incredible depiction of all these characters in our cover art from artist Nick Cagnetti, available to all of our Patreon supporters. And that's all because we're also video streaming our show live every other Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Tune in on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider Talk live. Just go to the Amazing Spider Talk page on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on notifications by clicking on that bell to be reminded when we go live. Just smash that subscribe button, everybody. That's what we want. Smash it, baby. In today's episode, we are going to start out with a discussion of the history of the What If series. Uh, then Dan and I are going to pick some of our favorite Spider-Man-related issues of that series. Uh, we'll discuss what came true from the pages of What If, and then we'll conclude with a discussion of the comic's legacy from Spider-Verse to the upcoming show on Disney+. Plus. If you want to read along, we are going to focus on Volume 1 of the What If series, specifically issues 1, 7, 19, 24, 30, and 46. Did you get all that, everybody? One That's seven. One seven. No, I'll, you no, go no, for no, it. No, 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 no. One seven, 19, 24, 30, 46. Hut, hut, hike. That's like the numbers from like the hatch on Lost, you know? Like, what do the numbers mean? <laughs> Everything's crazy. Well, uh, let's go back in time to talk about what if. So, uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about What If. How did this thing get started? Uh, yeah, so this series actually debuted in February 1977. It ran for 47 issues until 1984. It wasn't originally meant to be an ongoing, just something for fun, but it sold well, so they decided to continue it. Over the years, there have officially been 13 volumes of this series, but a lot of those are just one-offs that have been published over the years. I mean, only a few have actually been, I would say, continually ongoing over the span of months and years. But in the original series, which we're going to be focusing on here, each issue starts with Watu the Watcher discussing the changes in the timeline of major Marvel events. This was eventually retired for a variety of reasons, most recently probably because Owatu is dead. Thanks, Nick Fury, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, bef before we move on, I have to discuss this. Like, Owatu's design changes so much from issue to issue because there's different artists and teams. But, man, it took a long time for them to finally arrive at the version that we know today. I mean... I never really realized quite how buff Oatu was until you see him here with like a normal sized head. Something about his giant head really hides those arms. But like when you first see him and he's just kind of like a normal dude that's been pumping iron, it's just a strange design. I'm so glad there's something about that giant head that fixes everything. Do we do we maybe need to give our our viewers and listeners here a quick bio of of the Watcher here, just uh, so they know what the heck we're talking about here? So uh, the Watcher was actually created by Jack Kirby and Stanley and Fantastic Four, and like the whole premise is essentially, you know, he he sees everything or watches everything going on in the universe, but he is forbidden from his, you know, basically from interfering in any tangible way, correct? 
Yeah, that's because, you know, I, I forget what it's a backup story in some early Stan Lee comic with Jack Kirby, obviously, where it's revealed that the Watchers as a race, they like saw this planet with primitive life form that was like going through hard times. So they gave them all this technology and for a while that technology helped them, you know, become this utopia but eventually it broke down and they end up destroying themselves with the technology that the watchers gave them. And so the watchers swore off interfering in any way. Although it seems every time the watcher shows up, he ultimately does end up interfering in some way. His very presence suggests that he's interfering. It's that old philosophical thing where if you're watching it, are you influencing the events in some way? And ultimately he would eventually be killed off in the I forget the name of that event. Why am I forgetting? Uh, or, the origin, that event? Original sin. It's another sin. Dan. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Original sin. Now Nick Fury, the original Nick Fury, is now the Watcher, and he is like the unseen, and he's chained in a cape on the moon. Yeah. Sure. Why not? God bless. Well, anyway, so back back to this. Back to what if though? Just uh, sorry for the digression there, but I felt we we you know we've been referencing this guy so much so far. Let's let's get a little history there. So in terms of the characters that showed up in these what if stories, now now all of these what if stories are basically you know done in one stories, but the characters would later come back as like alternative versions of the character. For example, like in Spider Verse, the the event, not technically the animated uh, movie. But the comic narrative makes it pretty clear that this is not an alternative Earth per se, like Earth 2 in DC. It's not like, you know, not like a separate universe, but rather uh, a divergence in the timeline. So like the way these are these stories are initially presented, it's not so much like, oh, here on Earth, blah, 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 this is happening. It's like, say, in, in Marvel continuity, instead of something happening, something, you know, something else changed you know, the butterfly effect, I guess, and change the course of history because, you know, Spider-Man heard something differently or, you know, he used his webbing differently to save Gwen, etc. And, you know, even in the first issue, like he says, you know, strange parallel worlds of what might have been suggesting that they didn't actually happen. But of course, you know, Spider-Verse and a number of other tales would end up proving you know, that these are ultimate alternate realities eventually. And I think even by like issue seven, Owatu begins to suggest that they are worlds within worlds, worlds alongside worlds, and they're referring to these kind of parallel Earths. So they kind of wanted to have it both ways. And you could I, I think it's you know, you could make a good case that this was kind of the unofficial birth of the multiverse in, you know, the the pages of Marvel Comics that would later, you know, be kind of solidified by Alan Moore in a comic called Daredevils where like the Captain Britain Corps was kind of introduced and that whole multiverse kind of sprung to life in the Marvel universe. Although DC had been kind of doing that, I think since the early fifties. So, yeah. you know, yeah, the whole flash of two worlds comic from DC kind of set that whole premise up where it was like, there could be a flash of the silver age and then the flash of the golden age and they can interact. And then like that kind of got pushed further with justice league and justice society. But like for the most part, Marvel, you know, this was kind of unique for Marvel because they really didn't play with the the multiverse as much. I mean, for the most part, it was like our continuity, you know, it's the world outside your window and this is our continuity. And how can there be parallel Earths when this is essentially a fantastical version of what's happening on this Earth? Right. You know, so it was kind of kind of bucking that convention a little bit. 
So Mark, in this first issue, like what, what is the thing that they do to like signify like this change? Like, uh, w- like where does it first start diverging? Yeah, well, it's, it's so, I mean, we're, we're basically reliving the events, uh, you know, so the first issue that kicks off the series is what if Spider-Man had joined the Fantastic Four and, and it's, it's inspired from the events of Amazing Spider-Man number one, the very first issue of the series. And it, it you know, it takes place in the whole comic where Spider-Man in, invades the Baxter building and he wants to join the Fantastic Four because he's got to pay his bills because that's Spider-Man for you and they kind of like chase him away like what are you crazy we don't pay this is this is you know doing doing good for the earth is not a is not a paying gig you know in the original comic as spider-man is kind of as spider-man is swinging away sue storm kind of quietly mutters out like oh but wait and you know spider-man doesn't hear him and that's that but this time around, Sue says it loud enough that Spider-Man hears her, turns around, comes back, and they all kind of work something out. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, maybe we could pay you a little something. <laughs> I mean, and, and thus, everything changes. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's a big change, too. So, like, you know, this story was not, you know, this story and this series was not meant to continue in, in any way. It was kind of like a fun one-off thing but like what became kind of the like like driving editorial reason for this series to exist beyond selling a few comics it gave a shot to like newer writers or like you know people who had done some inventory stories to to get some work in especially on the art side like i mean okay the first comic is written by roy thomas clearly not a newbie or an inventory guy but uh the art is from uh jim craig but i think part of it too was i mean to have in terms of the having fun element you know because these stories were basically out of continuity, it became like a point of pride for the creators working on each individual issue about just like how much they can blow it up to hell. <laughs> it was like, 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 let's take like, you know, because they knew we were not coming back to this world in any tangible way. Like, you know, there was no foresight that, you know, someone like Dan Slott would come by years later and, and bring back the Spider-Man from the earth where he joined the Fantastic Four. They just would like, Every one of these issues would end either tragically, most of them tragically, uh, or or just absurdly. Like like in this first issue here, you know, what basically ends up happening is Sue Storm feels left out of the Fantastic Four because with Spider-Man in, she's really not needed. And, and Reed kind of treats her as like, oh, stay back and, and mind, mind the Baxter building, Sue. So she ends up being gravitating towards Namor, who, you know, they kind of had a a flirtation in the original Fantastic Four comics. And she decides to go with Namor and he like gives her um, what what is does he blast her with something or gives her a serum or, you know, whatever, some kind of MacGuffin. He he puts her in like this chamber that like alters her DNA. Yeah, so that she can't breathe air. So she can't she can't walk the surface. So she has to be under the sea. Under the sea with Namor for the rest of her life and thus cannot be with Reed and let's just cry, cry tears for for Sue Storm, right? Well, that's what's always so funny about a lot of these issues is they start off with like the premise of that book is like, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? So you suspect that the book is going to be about like, how does that change Spider-Man's life? But it, it really quickly like, you know, plays itself out that like, Roy Thomas didn't really care how that affected Spider-Man's life. It's more about like, how did it kick Sue Storm out of the Fantastic Four? And 
so many of these issues kind of operate that way, where it's like, oh, you know, like, what if Aunt May died instead of Uncle Ben? But then, like, five pages later, Uncle Ben is not even really a main character in that story. It's more about, like, how that ripple effect causes Jameson to know Peter's identity and ultimately the Green Goblin and so on and so forth. You know, for me, I think it's the issues that really stick to the premise that I enjoy a lot more. But yeah, some of these go like, I mean, not they don't just do, damn it to hell. It's like the whole universe collapses and you really realize like, you know, every situation that Spider-Man finds himself in where he's like up against the wall, it's really just the writer's pen getting him out of it because, uh, uh, you know, a, a writer with a mean streak could just have the building collapse on him or whatever, which is basically what happens to all these characters is some unfortunate thing. They die within 10 minutes of being Spider-Man, whereas Peter's continued for 50 years. Yeah. Also, like, I mean, yeah, you're talking about a writer with a mean streak. I mean, some of the stuff here is pretty dark, too. Like, I mean, something that kind of sticks out to me in one of these issues is I forget uh, which issue number it is. Is it seven where it's the what if someone else got bit by the spider? Yeah, that's seven. Um, yeah. Like the Flash Thompson story, I mean, in addition, I mean, you know, they all they all except for Betty die at the end. It's Flash, John Jameson and Betty. But in addition, like Flash has the the Crusher Hogan fight that Peter has in Amazing Fantasy 15, except he snaps his neck and kills him in the middle of the ring. And I'm like, whoa, that's like that's dark, man. <laughs> like, it's just like Crusher's dead. What are you going to do, son? <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's it yeah like that's tragedy as it is and then they still kill flash at the end anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> i i mean eventually i think it became just a trope of the series is just like if you're gonna do this like several supporting cast members need to perish in in some ways so yeah it's, it's fun if you enjoy that kind of morbid stuff one of the things i thought was really neat was in the back of issue seven roy thomas who was kind of like you know, leading the book and, and the stories and stuff, he listed like a ton of ideas for future what if stories. And it was a big column called Why Not? And underneath it was about like 30 to 40 different what if scenarios. And they chose which ones they would do in the book by having people mail in letters with their top three choices. And then they would, you know, tabulate that and do the stories that were most popular. Now, whether that that actually was really reflected in the pages of the book, I don't know, because, uh, you know, half the letters that were sent into Marvel back in the day were phony. But, you know, it's kind of neat. And you can if you read the list, you can kind of see all of the different choices that they had to go with. And most of them ended up being made. So it's kind of neat. Yeah, no doubt. And then uh, what a friend of the podcast ended up getting uh, a very early start on a Spider-Man story on What If, Dan? It's not his first Spider-Man story, but it's amongst his first. And I would say like first kind of like major story. And we haven't mentioned that like a lot of these books are like 40 pages long. Mm. They're all like double sized issues. So, yeah, that's Ron Friends. He got, you know, a pretty sizable issue with issue 46 of what if and that's what if spider-man's uncle ben had lived which i was referring to earlier and if you want to see ron friends in his like rawest most steve dicko it's this issue i mean it is like him straight up emulating dicko more than he ever you know i think would in the future which he already is kind of known for it's a pretty neat issue for like you know that regard but historically you know if you love ron friends 
this is kind of a good one to check out. So yeah, that's issue 46 of What If. Do you want to get into some of our favorite stories from this series? Yeah, sure, Mark. So what about you? What's your favorite what if of the Spider-Man story? I mean, I, I got to be honest, Dan. I, I love a lot of these because, again, I mean, they, they are so kooky and crazy and dark and twisted and, and you know, kind of sadistic and how they treat their cast. Probably my favorite, and this is this is not a, a deep cut, I think. I mean, a lot of people, I think, come back to this one as one of the better issues from the run, is uh, What If Number 24, which is What If Gwen Stacy Had Lived?, I think this one kind of explain it kind of goes in a lot of different directions that I didn't expect it to go. Kind of what you were alluding to earlier, like you're initially thinking like, okay, so if Gwen lives, you know, you you would assume that Peter would go on to to marry her and, you know, live happily ever after. And how will they how will they twist that? And would it be like, you know, would there be something in the relationship that becomes twisted because of you know, this change of events. And it's not exactly that. That's where the, the, I guess, the wrinkle comes. First of all, the way that Peter, that Spider-Man saves Gwen here is he doesn't use the webbing to catch her when when falling off the bridge. They still keep saying the George Washington Bridge, Dan, which just drives me nuts. (laughs) Um, It even says like, oh, it's his favorite bridge. Is this from 121, the joke, the line about it's his favorite bridge because he likes dollar bills? I, I don't even remember, but it's like, Either way, I, I'm groaning at it. I should ask Jerry Conway if that's his joke or not. What if sp- they got the bridge right? Yeah, right. That should be yeah. an issue, right? It's, it's the- what if they knew their New York geography? Right, right. You know, like you, you're showing the Brooklyn Promenade, but George Washington Bridge. Anyway, no. So instead of using his webbing, and and we would kind of see this in other stories going forward, like Spider-Man reacting to how he how he essentially killed Gwen in Amazing Spider-Man 121 <laughs> by snapping her neck with the webbing by accident, and like you know, different ways to break the fall of a falling person off a bridge. This one, I don't, I don't know if this is really a realistic way to to save somebody. He he jumps off the bridge himself to kind of speed up past her and get and, and catch her and then contort his body to break their fall. It's a bit, it's a bit of a lark, but I mean, whatever. She lives. There's the initial like you killed my father from Amazing Spider-Man ninety with Captain Stacy. They clear it up. Where things really start to get twisted here is so they, of course, go to get married and at the ceremony, Jameson comes forward and, you know, thanks to Norman Osborn, who still knows Peter's identity. Now, Norman, Norman and Harry reconcile and Norman seems to be normal again, but, you know, it's just kind of one last twist of the knife. He outs uh, Spider-Man's identity to Jameson and then Jameson in turn puts it in the Daily Bugle and thus like it's kind of like Civil War, essentially, what what would end up coming years and years later in actual Spider-Man continuity. All the Spider-Man's enemies know, Jameson knows and, of course, fires him and then wants to sick the police after him. And and basically, Spider-Man has to live a life on the run for the foreseeable future because everyone knows who he is. And I, 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 I got to admit, part of it is I like how that element would get borrowed for Civil War down the line. But I, I also just liked how, you know, that idea of Norman knowing Peter's identity, which led to Gwen's death in the first place. With Gwen dying, then Norman subsequently died in the actual comics. So the fact that Norman lived basically allowed that part of Spider-Man's bio to really come back and haunt him in an even bigger way down the line. So that that's why it stands out to me. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one, if you think it's a 
good story or not, or if you just want to talk about your own, Dan. No, I think it's probably the best of the bunch. If you hadn't chose this, I would have probably chosen this one. It's a really great story. One of the things that I like about it is kind of, and about all of these, is you can see Marvel kind of self-mythologizing, like what stories they choose to repeat suggests like that, you know, what stories are important to Spider-Man's mythology, you know, and you begin to see like them not just treating it like a weekly mag. The the very idea that they're looking back on these things suggests that they know there's inherent value in these stories. And we talked about how contentious the Gwen story was. Them doing this is kind of like a way of like engaging with those fans in in a certain way that you kind of see now, right now we got like the Snyder cut and all this stuff. Like these things are kind of like early versions of that. And I, I almost wonder how much this issue exists as a, like a, kind of like a mea culpa uh, reaction to kind of quiet fans or something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a great issue and really interesting how like all these things intertwine. Now looking back on it with 2020 hindsight, which is a phrase I don't like saying anymore, but I'm going to, you know, hey, Gwen still has Norman's kids. Like what what happened after they got married? Did, did she give birth to Gabriel? Uh, and yeah, like, oh, do we really want to go down that territory? Oh, um, no. Ma- maybe not. I also think it's kind of funny to read this now in the wake of like uh, us kind of like learning about those Mexican comics where – Gwen and Peter got married and she kind of lived on for a bit longer and reading this, I was like, Oh, this is kind of like a glimpse into those Mexican issues. I just think about like them kissing at the wedding and that cover of them getting married. But anyway, I I love this issue. I think it's really fun. A good choice by you. And even if they get the bridge wrong again, also interesting to note that when Gwen falls off the bridge and gets caught by the web, as they recap that story, they don't include the snap sound effect. Here, So I almost wonder if that was like, I mean, a, an omission by accident or whether they were kind of trying to start to clean that up a little bit. So it wasn't quite so much of Spider-Man's fault that she died. I've always found that curious about this issue. Mm. Who knows? But it's 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 a fun one. And like I said, I mean, it, I, I do like even if it's a mea culpa, I mean, it's it's very apparent. I mean, and maybe this is just because this is what the series is, but it's like Peter still cannot be happy, you know, and, and that's. And that's important, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I got to make sure that he, I think only one of these is there truly like a good ending to it. And that's the like if Uncle Ben lived thing. Well, the cl- like by the end of that issue. Well, the clone they one kind of the, like team up. I was going to say the clone one kind of ends on a happy note, too, where they're just like, hey, that's true. Hey, we could team up and you could be <laughs> you could be Peter on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I'm just like, <laughs> God, I, I, I for the, the, the for his dating life, that'd be a little weird, don't you think? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that he like relinquishes him to the couch in that issue. He's like, I get the bed and you get the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, so in terms of favorites, I chose I mean, they're all great like you said my favorite if it's not issue 24 is the one we've kind of talked about a little bit already is issue 7 what if someone else besides Spider-Man had been bitten by the radioactive spider now this is a bit of a cheat because you get kind of four stories in one right or three stories in one you get like multiple different people and that's Flash Thompson who becomes Captain Spider and you've got Betty Brand who becomes the first Spider Girl and then you've got John Jameson, who becomes, of all things, Spider Jameson, 
which I've always enjoyed. And what I like about this issue so much is how closely it adheres to Amazing Fantasy 15 and Amazing Spider-Man, like the kind of Dicko runs. Like they recreate the panels like perfectly, even down to like in, in the Betty Brant one, when she confronts the burglar, it's got the two dots in the eyes of like the holes in the spider eyes. Like, I just think there's so much kind of like care and attention to detail in these stories. And I think how they play out is all kind of really plausible and in keeping with the character. So for example, like with flash Thompson as captain spider, you mentioned him killing Hulk Hogan, but he's not interested in testing out his powers in the same way that Peter is. And he just kind of uses them to brute force his way through things without thinking. And I, I really like that element of it that like it ends up killing Hulk Hogan or whatever, uh, Crusher Hogan, I mean. I find that kind of enjoyable because I think it's in keeping with that character being a hothead. And then his death is like equally tragic because of course Flash Thompson wouldn't invent web shooters for himself. He wasn't smart enough to do that. So when he fights the Vulture for issue two, the Vulture just takes him up into the sky and drops him and he dies. (laughs) I just think that there's like a level of like intense scrutiny on the early issues. That's really fun here. Like, of course, Betty Brant would quit being the character and then they reference, you know, amazing Spider-Man 50 with the costume in the trash can. And, you know, no costume has ever been looked better in the trash can than this one (laughs) because it's, it's terrible. It might be the worst spider costume ever. If this costume was stolen from somebody, like, let it, you know, let's, I hope the original owner never owned up to it. Right. I mean, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Just last night, my wife was uh, like joking about like, if conventions came back, you know, would we cosplay? What would she go as? And I was like, oh, you should go as Betty Brandt Spider Girl. Uh, Just wear like a corset and like spider boots, gloves and a mask. It's terrible. I mean, truly, it is the worst costume. And so, like, yeah, she realizes that it's, like, her fault that Uncle Ben died. But instead of, like, rising to the challenge, she feels this intense guilt that it was, like, her fault. And she just quits being Spider-Man. And then with Spider-Jameson, you know, John Jameson's this noble character. And so, you know, uh, eventually he gets drawn out to saving the space shuttle, which he's not in anymore. Because he doesn't have, like, web shooters and stuff like that, he's got this, like, rocket pack. And it ends up crushing him underneath the the capsule and he dies and uh, he has a statue erected in his honor in Central Park. And Jameson becomes like a crusader for superheroes, of course, because his son's a superhero now. I like that. I mean, I don't love that he just gets crushed. It feels kind of cheap. But there's this beautiful moment where he's just buried under this capsule and this beam of God light comes out of the sky (laughs) and is highlighting the scene. It's ridiculous, but it's great. And I think the kind of like cherry on top of it all is that all these characters quitting or dying, Peter Parker remains a constant in the story. And at the end of all the stories, they all dovetail and they have the same ending, which is a neat kind of like storytelling trick where Peter ends up taking up the role of Spider-Man by finding the spider and you know, reworking the formula and giving himself spider powers through the dead spider body. And he takes up the mantle of Spider-Man because all of these other people couldn't do it. And it's kind of one of those nice turns of fate where it's like, no, no matter what happens or who got bit, Peter would rise to the occasion because that's who he is and become Spider-Man. And 
So you get kind of like four origin stories in one book. I think it's really cool uh, as a story. Well, Dan, I'm, I'm glad you got to share that one with us because that's a fun one, too. Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of bang for your buck, you know, and I guess the 40 page length you get to you can do something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, cool. Those are some of our favorites. Well, let's talk about our slack here, Mark, as we are want to do. Yeah, well, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. Just this week, we've been discussing the huge surge in pricing that Ultimate Fallout number 4 has seen in the wake of the announcement of a Miles Morales game. I mean, seriously, that book is going for like... Six hundred dollars, and I've got two copies. So, like, Mark, what do I do? I, I think I think you need to sell one, Dan. I mean, you know, what, what what do you got to lose? There's no way that that speculator bubble's not going to burst, Dan. I mean, this is like death of Superman, but better. <laughs> I mean, like, what happens when Miles Morales joins the MCU? It might get even more. I don't know, but my, I got a polybagged one. So, oh, like, man, I'm damn. just damn. I would here. just Dan make the money, make it. <laughs> I saw I saw someone yeah. I saw something today Venom three with the first appearance of Null is selling for like a few hundred bucks. I'm like, what? Yeah, that's not going to disappoint people when that when that story is like just okay. So if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community and have conversations just like this, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you're there, be sure to let us know what you think of this very new episode that you're listening to right now. So uh, let's go back to the show there, Mark. Yeah, well, uh, this is a this is a fun little segment we want to do here. I mean, you know, not, nothing too in-depth, but we're going to call this What If It Did? Huh? <laughs> no, I mean... I see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to people pitching stories to What If and most of them being done, you know, with... With a few exceptions, most of these stories, not just the Spider-Man ones, but all of them, kind of came true in one way or another. I mean, actually, way, way back in the day, I think for comicbook.com, I had done a deep dive on this when Jane Foster became Thor, because there's an issue of that. Uh, what if Jane Foster got the hammer? But anyway, but he, he, here are some of the, the, in terms of the Spider-Verse, things that did come true. I mean, obviously, starting with the first issue, what if Spider-Man would join the Fantastic Four? While he did not have a, a cute little five on his chest uh, like he did in What If, he did actually join the Fantastic Four in the early uh, 2010s after Johnny Storm died in the Fantastic Four and they reformed as the Future Foundation. You know, and then the FF series ran for about a year or so and... You know, it was Jonathan Hickman who wrote that. And I got to be honest, I was always a little disappointed in that because I always felt like Spider-Man was like hardly used in that series. Like he 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 did not overshadow anyone, I think, in that book. Would you say? I would I would agree with that. Although there is the one great issue of that run from Fantastic Four where it's uh, Spider-Man and Johnny Storm as roommates having like a party and like Johnny Storm like makes out with MJ and like a Anihil gets stuck on the toilet. I mean, it's like a whole thing, but do, what is it with Spider-Man and, uh, and these like really powerful characters in the toilet, like <laughs> the beyonder learning how to like poop. I mean, <laughs> this is a whole thing. 
and that's a whole other tangent. But uh, you know, if there's one issue that resulted from this, like to me, that's the like standout. I'm forgetting the numbering of it, but like you can look it up. Yeah. It's a really funny issue. Yeah, no doubt. And then of course the other one that I guess kind of came true a little bit was uh, what if the clone had lived? <laughs> No one would actually have brought back the clone, Dan, right? That's insane. <laughs> when you read this story, it's like almost obvious that this tale should happen. You know, like it's it's just such a like perfect thing. It's amazing that after this was published, it took as long as it did for them to actually execute this story. And I wonder if only because this what if existed, they were like, we can't do that because the what if suggested didn't happen because it just seems like. Oh, what a cool idea for a story. It's obvious to do this. And you and I are on the record as thinking the clone saga is actually a really cool idea, just managed pretty poorly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and again, like, I, I actually enjoyed this one quite a lot, too. I just, to me, this is this is the perfect issue to end in some kind of tragically absurd way. And this is one of the few ones that does end on a happy note. So that's why I was just like, well, no, like, I mean, the real clone saga ended tragically. That's how it should end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, <laughs> you got it wrong. What if? <laughs> it's funny because this is almost like all the ideas of the lost years are kind of contained in this one issue. Like, the idea that we're following the other guy who doesn't know that he, you know, isn't the real deal and has to like come to grips with like catching up on his life. I mean, it's really like quite interesting. It, it reads like this kind of like JMD psychological tale that like vastly predates it. It's a really fun comic. And yeah, of course, this would come to pass, what, 15 years later? Yeah, give or take. Damn, what's another one that came to be? Yeah, sure. So in the in the issue I talked about where I you know, it was like what if someone else got bit by the spider? Of course, that would become true much to my dislike. Not that I don't like Cindy Moon, but like I just think it's a cheap story idea. I mean, it's fitting for a what if, but I don't think bringing that into continuity is really that cool of an idea. But anyway, it happened and Cindy Moon got bit by the spider as well. So I guess that's the wrinkle. It's not someone else. That spider had another bite left in it. You know, also in that issue, Flash Thompson becomes Captain Spider. And, you know, we would get Agent Venom, which isn't really too far off from that. You know, he died in that issue. And I guess it went a little bit better in in this time as Venom. I mean, not really. His father got his head carved open by Jack-O-Lantern. And then Flash ultimately died anyway. So good times. Comics, baby. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and of course, like, I mean, you know, there are kind of, var I mean, Uncle Ben has never truly been revived, but I mean, like, we've kind of in, we've played with the idea of him coming back, whether it's for a one shot or whatever. So, I mean, again, these stories all kind of, a lot of them have these wrinkles. Like, there's one, what if Wolverine killed the Hulk, which ended up happening in um, the, what was it, the Mark Millar futuristic dystopian Hulk uh, story. Imperfect Hulk. No, not Imperfect Hulk. The one oh, 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 with Wolverine. Um, old Man Logan. Yes, thank you. We, we saw a lot of this, and this is kind of funny to watch these stories and, and you know, kind of through through the lens of a different uh, creator actually come to be. And you got to wonder how much of it was them looking back at what if and being like, I got to make this different, <laughs> which most of them were. Well, that's <laughs> the question I have. Yeah. If you're an editor and one of your writers comes to you and pitches you something that's been done in a what if, like, what are the rules there? Like, do you go, hey, you know, like, 
I'm not going to give you a paycheck for just rehashing this in a longer form. Like what are the rules there? Are they, I mean, clearly they're not untouchable because people have been reusing those ideas constantly. And maybe it's just that there was something really neat there. Like people, those stories had inherent value to them. Uh, But like, what are the rules? Clearly the rules for the clone saga was it needed to be at least four years long and a hundred (laughs) issues. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. How much does that clone saga weigh? We're still waiting (laughs) on that answer. But uh, yeah. So like, you know, what if, you know, ran for 40 some issues and came back for 12 more volumes. So, you know, it's, it's had a long history over the years. Like, you know, how is it still kind of impacting Marvel today other than these kind of creators reusing some of these ideas? You know, besides the fact, like you said, that the series has been revised multiple times. I mean, we're now actually going to get an animated series for it on Disney Plus in 2021. Who's the narrator? I think it's a famous person doing the narration, too, right? Who's going to play the Watcher, I think. Right, Dan? For some reason, I feel like it's What's-His-Face from Westworld, but I I, I could be wrong. This is this um, is some rivet, r- riveting audio and video right I know, now. What's I his know. name? Uh, this is great. You know, that guy. <laughs> you know, he's got a face. He was also a cameo in The Last of us part two um, um and, Jeff, jeffrey wright that's the name yes i think it's jeffrey wright. i think you're right yeah so i mean obviously in terms of legacy the fact that the series has gone on and is and is coming across different media that's that's impressive as as we mentioned in in the original run of this book i mean we kind of moved from this alternative timeline to an actual parallel earth kind of structure and that really gave marvel some long-term flexibility in terms of playing around with its continuity which is like for years marvel kind of held sacred and still does to an extent like you know when when dc has always done things like it's like it's new 52 and and reborn and stuff like that you know marvel has always kind of thumbed their nose at at dc for doing that saying like you know our continuity is sacred we would never do anything to it except for the fact that like you know without something like what if we probably would never have gotten like the ultimate universe which was basically like let's just tell all brand new stories starting from point zero and just kind of set it on a different earth. And, and, and that's how we get away with it. And I think what if kind of set the standard for that? Yeah, for sure. And you get things like 2099 and noir and fairy tales, and you got like the cinematic universe and the 67 universe, you know, uh, you're right. All these things were born out of the freedom that what if, what if walked so that we could fly or whatever, and now we've got the Spider-Verse, like it or not, you know, that is a major part of the continuity. And while all these characters get killed off even further in that event, it is now kind of canon for real in Spider-Man that there are many Spider-People, you know, we even got a movie and we're getting a What If series. So like in many ways, you know, What If has gone truly mainstream. I mean, the question is, like, Mark, do you consider this kind of like an official series to collect? I mean, like, is it more Spider-Man important than something like Marvel Team-Up? I mean, Marvel Team-Up, outside of what, like five or six issues, had Spider-Man in every single issue. I mean, where this is, I mean, like Spider-Man showed up whatever once every four or five issues, maybe. So, I mean, I would want to own the Spider-Man-centric issues as a Spider-Man collector, but I don't know if I would need to own the entire series. I mean, I would want to own the entire series just as a, as a fan of Marvel. I think it's a fun book. I think this is a really cool concept, and I'm glad that they 
they have this. Like, I'm glad that they they went in this direction to kind of give them that flexibility. Because like comparing them to DC for something here, I mean, DC has like Elseworlds, which is like again like their kind of like alternative take. You know, what if what if Superman was uh from a communist regime regime? You know, in Red Sun and stuff like that. And like it's just it's it's cool to be able to give a, a writer and an artist just kind of carte blanche to tell a story, blow things up, uh, not have to worry about giving the toys to somebody else to put back in the box or anything like that. So, so yeah, I, I, you know, to answer your original question, I don't know if it's more important than say like a Marvel team up or some other B book, but I mean, these are cool stories to own regardless. Do you own any of them? Like I just bought issue one a year or so ago and I'm really proud. It's a nice looking copy and that's a really fun book. I do not, but you know, someday. It'll come. I should probably get it before the Disney Plus show airs for the speculator market, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. So um, one of the other fun things is right, they bring it back all the time. And I kind of wanted to give a shout out. You know, they, they brought it back just two years ago in 2018. And there was this excellent issue, which by Jerry Conway, of all people, of what if Flash Thompson became Spider-Man, which they already did. So now we're doing a, another version of this, but it's actually like a really good issue. If you want to read like a fun what, modern what if, what if Flash Thompson became Spider-Man is a lot of fun. I bought it digitally to check it out and I loved it so much. I had to go back and buy it physically. There's like recreations of Amazing Spider-Man 33, but with Flash Thompson, it's just like an artistic showcase and a great story from Jerry Conway. And then there was also what if, Peter Parker had become the Punisher, which is an interesting story. It's like Uncle Ben gets killed. And instead of like going to like stop the burglar, he like kills the burglar and like becomes like the Punisher. He was like a one man crime stopping force because he just takes it a lot harder and a lot further. So it's like Spider-Man with like instead of web shooters, he's got like machine guns built into his wrist. It's like a whole thing. You know, What If is always fresh, and I, I like it when they roll it back out every now and again. So check those out if you haven't already. Excellent, Dan. Why don't, why don't we take it on home, Dan? Yeah, well, if you guys find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. We have a very small audience, and we're looking to bring more people on board. And if you're able, become a member on our Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, Patreon members will hear Dan and I review Amazing Spider-Man number 44 and Amazing Spider-Man Sins Rising. Yeah, everybody, and since new comic issues aren't coming out frequently right now, well, they're kind of coming out too frequently at the moment, for the next couple weeks at least, why not take that $3.99 and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And when comic stores are open back up again in full, you'll hear our Patreon exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that they come out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you can gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora and Color and Inks. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background image created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, that library is really growing, all those great images. that I just have them cycling on my computer, and I always get like a fresh new Spider-Man-y thing 
to look at. We know this is a hard time for everybody, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description and thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. I know some of them are even in the chat joining with us right now. So thank you guys. You make this awesome thing happen. But alas, Dan, what if the show had to end? Because <laughs> it does. Never, Mark. No. Never. Oh, well, now since you said never, the show won't end. No, uh, it's time for, all oh, good, good. time for all good things to come to an end. We want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Koch with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by some of our favorite artists, including Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. That was a lot of fun as always, Dan, but what do we got coming up next time around? Yeah, next time, I'm really looking forward to this, Mark. We're finishing up our season with episode eight, and it's going to be a discussion of Roger Stern's debut in the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man. You know, we haven't really talked about it much yet, but season five, I think, is going to be all about Roger Stern's amazing Spider-Man run and all of those great books. But his spectacular stuff was really interesting, too. So we figured we'd give you a tease of our Stern-tastic discussions in a couple of weeks. So just be sure to join us and learn more about Roger Stern and how he got his start on Spider-Man. I mean, some people see it as Roger Stern's start on the book. I see it as the start of the Roderick Kingsley era, Dan. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> he has a very strange debut and Mark, we know your fascination with the Hobgoblin and I, I'm, we may have to even argue for a whole season just on the Hobgoblin. Ooh. So uh, <laughs> I, I think there's some exciting stuff coming in the future. If all of you guys are tuning in live, don't forget as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with you all on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk live this time, check us out on YouTube next time, Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But don't worry, this is still a podcast and that will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show. That's with Mark, our motto, which you always take up for us unless it's you recounting your Uncle Ben's death. So Mark... Until Betty Brant pulls out her old, incredibly ugly costume and takes up the mantle as the new Spider Girl, what's our motto? I feel like, do I have to like resurrect Joey the Elbow for this, or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a that's a call. Oh, anyway, no, of course that mantra, that motto is with great podcasts. There must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't don't miss the next. In-